Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 This is the word of God. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. There we go. All right. We are live. Father, thank you so much uh, for uh, this opportunity to open your word this morning um, to um, just see how you reveal yourself to us. It's a really special passage that we have here before us this morning, and I pray that, God, you would use this time, use your words to penetrate our hearts, to change the way even that we think about you, that we think about ourselves in relation to you. God, use the, the living and active word that we have before us to change us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When we get started this morning, I want to, before we get started, I want to play a little game with you, a word association game, okay? So I'm going to say a word, and I want you to just think about, like, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Bentley, just keep it to yourself. We, if you have to, you can use your inside voice. All right, so here's our first word, ice cream. What do you think? Maybe delicious, yummy, I'm glad I'm not lactose intolerant. Maybe that's what you thought of. Here's your next one. What about Broncos? Disappointing, right? Problems at the quarterback position. How about this one? Work. It's hard. It's long. Sometimes it's rewarding. What's the first thing, though, that comes to your mind when I say God? Or when I say Jesus? What's the first thing that you think of when I say those words? It's a question that has a lot of different responses. But what's really special about our passage this morning is that we have God himself in Jesus revealing himself to us his self-revelation, about what his own heart is like. And so that's the the uniqueness of the passage this morning that we come to. I, I hope to persuade you, what I want you to walk away with this morning, what I hope to persuade you of is that in his sovereign and gracious will, Jesus calls sinners and sufferers to himself to take on his yoke and to learn from his gentle and lowly heart. That's what I want to persuade you of this morning. Now, before we get started, I want to also let you know there's a book that's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, written by a man by the name of Dane Ortland. It's a tremendous book. We used it uh, three years ago in our home groups. It's kind of a blend of, uh, I would say, somewhat of an academic book, but also a, a very devotional book. So some of what I will be sharing with you this morning has been gleaned uh, from that book. And if you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to to get a copy and read it. 
Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. All right, so we're going to look at, as we look at our passage this morning, um, our outline is as follows. His sovereignty, uh, Jesus' sovereignty. Uh, we're going to look at his heart. We're really going to camp out on what Jesus' heart is like. There's not many places where we have that kind of self-revelation, so we're going to spend some time there. We're going to look at his yoke, and then finally, we're going to look at his call. All right, let's start with his sovereignty. Now, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I love a good game of hide and seek, right? I mean, you're looking for the best place to hide yourself, something out of the way, something where maybe you're, you're very inconspicuous, or maybe the strategy is more like, I'm just going to hide in plain sight, right? You know, so that, so that uh, it's such an obvious place that no one would ever see me there. But what we find with God is quite a bit different. He doesn't play hide and seek. If he doesn't want to be found, he won't be found. And when he wants to be found, he'll make himself as clear as day. So let's look at the first three verses of our passage this morning. So I'll look at the, actually the first two verses, verses 25 and 26. And then we'll come back to 27. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. You see what he's doing here, what Jesus is saying? He's hiding himself from the wise and understanding. But he's revealing himself. He, his heart is, he wants to reveal himself to the little children. Now, when he says little children, he doesn't mean, of course, little children. We had a wonderful morning here this morning in the Lord's Supper service. Um, five um, young adults, I'll call them, um, not quite fully adults, but almost there. I hate to use the word teenagers. I don't like that word, so we'll call them young adults. We're baptized this morning, five. But you don't have to be a child in age to come to Christ. What he's talking about, though, is a childlike heart that he reveals himself to people like that. And I think it's really interesting what Jesus says. He doesn't just say, this is how it works. He actually says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden yourself. You've hidden these things is actually what he says. Now, these things, what he's referring to there, of course, is the kingdom of heaven, is the kingdom of God. It's his ways. It's his heart. It's who he is. He's hidden those things from the wise and understanding, but he's revealed them to the little children. I love the way that C.S. Lewis says it. We should have the heart of a child, but the head of an adult. Now, what's interesting as well is that this is God's gracious will. This is not a reaction. This is what he ordained. This is his sovereign choice. Let's look at verse 27 now. Verse 27 says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's equating himself with God. That intimate relationship that he's describing. Only the Father really knows the Son. Only the Son really knows the Father. He's pointing to the fact of that type of special relationship. If you think about it, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit knew each other from eternity past. 
That's a kind of intimacy, intimate knowledge that none of us have as it relates to one another. So what's important about that? That's really interesting, but what's important about that? What's important is that it is Jesus basically saying, I am equal with God. I am equal with God. He and I are one and the same. Okay, so hey, that's great, Ben. Thanks for all that knowledge. What's, what's the, the point of these three verses? How do these three verses connect to the three verses that Melissa read to us to, to start the, the, the preaching part of our service this morning? Well, it has to do with this. It's really a bridge text. What Jesus is bridging is what he said to those cities, to, to Chorazin, to, to Bethsaida, and to Capernaum, who were the wise and understanding. Right? He's connecting that. They were comfortable in their religious system, and they rejected Jesus in their pride. But in rejecting him, what he's saying is, when you rejected God, or were you in, rather, when you rejected me, you were really rejecting God. And for those that came to me in childlike faith in those cities, you were really finding your way to the Father. So that's, that's the whole point of this passage right here, these three, these three verses. And so the very next thing then, so here's what I think is really interesting before we move to the next point in our outline. What's really interesting is that he makes, he, making this connection, what he's saying is, so don't be like the wise and understanding. Be like the childlike. And what is the childlike like? They're, they're dependent. They're needy. We all know what that's like. And so he says at the very beginning of verse 28, what does he say? Come to me. It's almost as if he's saying, because of these things, because God reveals himself to the childlike and to the needy, come to me. Be like a child and come to me in faith and repentance. So let's look then at the second point in our outline and, and dig a little deeper into uh, the connection here. And, and let's look at Jesus' heart, God's own heart even. So in, in college, I was in a Bible study, and the, the guy leading the study said, hey, you know, what do you, what do you guys, um, what are the things that you really love about God? And, uh, you know, I, I don't even remember what I said. It was probably a good Sunday school answer. Um, but my friend said, I really like the God of the Old Testament. I really like that God was strong and powerful, and he couldn't be trifled with. That's the God that I find uh, that I like. Now, my brother, who's a dear friend of mine still, 25 years on, I think he might give a little bit more of a nuanced answer. I think when he comes to this passage here this morning, as we are, he would want to be informed by what God says about himself as opposed to, this is what I like God to be like. And so that's where we are this morning. Let the scripture inform your mind this morning about who God and Jesus really are. So then let's look at his heart. Well, what's the heart? We're going to have to define some terms. What's the heart? Well, of course, the heart is, uh, I, I like to use Paul David Tripp's definition. I think it's very helpful. It's the causal core of your being. The causal core of your being. That's your heart. So said in another way, that's a shorthand way of saying it. I think the, the other way to say it is just, this is what motivates you. This is what comes out of you most 
naturally. This is your heart, your causal core. And so when Jesus is talking about his heart, what he's saying is, this is what flows most naturally out of my being. All right? So then what does he say? If Jesus, if this is what flows most naturally out of who you are, what are those things? Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say righteousness and holiness and justice? He says gentleness and lowliness. Well, let's dig into that. What does he mean by gentle? Well, the word gentle here could also be translated meek. It's translated that way in a few different places. Now, this, is, this meekness is not timidity. Okay, It's not being afraid of other people or afraid of things in general. I think the best definition I've heard for meekness, and this is what Jesus, I think, applies to Jesus as well, it's power under control. Meekness is power under control. You guys all, I'm sure everybody knows the uh, movie The Princess Bride, right? And you think about all the characters in the movie The Princess Bride, and certainly there wasn't really any bloodshed in The Princess Bride. That's why we can watch it with our young children. But all of those things, amongst all of those characters, there was one character in particular who never had a harsh word, who was never really reactionary, right? He was never even really mean. In fact, the meanest he ever really was was kind of like a short quip to kind of put people in their place. And who was that? Well, it was Andre the Giant, the biggest of all of the characters, right? Seven foot seven and 400 pounds, all whatever it was, a huge mountain of a man, but was the most gentle and certainly the most meek of all of the characters, given the amount of power that he had. That's what Jesus is like. It's just a, it's a glimpse, of course, of just what he's like. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He has his power under control. His heart, his heart toward us, this is really important, his heart toward us does not get tired of our sin. It doesn't get tired of our sin. It doesn't grow cold toward us. He's never surprised, and so he's never reactionary. He does not react harshly when we've sinned. Instead, his heart overflows. It abounds in gentleness and peace and loving kindness toward us even in our sin. So what does it mean, though, that he's also lowly? Now, this is the same word for humble. It's the same word for humble. But it's not humility in the sense of, oh, I don't think much about myself, or I don't think about myself at all. I'm, only, I'm super others-oriented. That's not what it means. It means laid low. It's kind of like humble beginnings. When we say that somebody comes from humble beginnings, what are we thinking of? We're thinking of somebody that didn't come from much, Right? Jesus is saying here to us, I know in my heart what it's like to be laid low, to be crushed, to be pressed down by life's circumstances. Not because I necessarily want to be, but because that's what life is bringing to me. I know what that's like. And so what's the point? The point then is that Jesus is accessible. He knows what it's like to suffer he knows what it's like to be laid low. He knows what it's like to wonder how you're going to make it to the next paycheck. To wonder how it's ever going to work with your family. To wonder how you could ever show up at church doing what you did. The people knew. He knows what that's like. 
The point is he is accessible. But we need to press in further. I'm sure you're already thinking back to the story of my friend Chris and who, who said, you know, I really, really, the God of the Old Testament appeals to me. You're probably thinking to yourself, well, that is kind of interesting, gentle and lowly. How do we reconcile that to the God of the Old Testament who we see is, you know, he's, 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 he's executing judgment. He, he's, you know, he's, I mean, frankly, eliminating whole nations of people. How do we reconcile these things? Well, well I want to give you four passages from the Old Testament that just give you a glimpse into the God of the Old Testament, who is, oh, by the way, the God of the New Testament. So they should be on the slides up here shortly. The first one is from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This is a passage I know will be familiar. Of course, Moses had said, hey, God, I want to know who you really are. God says, you can't see who I really am, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by you, and you can see my backside glory. And this is what God says to Moses as he passes by. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So what do we see first from God? We see that he is a God merciful and gracious. That's the first thing he says about himself. Slow to anger. Abounding. Not just, oh, I have steadfast love. Abounding. Overflowing. With steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now put a pin in that. For thousands. What does he say next, though? He says, he says that uh, he is, he can by no means clear the guilty. And he's going to visit the sins on the fathers and on the fathers' children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He is a God of justice, right? We need a God of justice. There's so much injustice in this world that if he didn't execute justice, what hope would we have? So we need him to be just. But here's what's interesting. You could easily, in, in, in uh, all the Bible interpreters that I, I looked at agreed on this, you could have easily said where it says keeping steadfast love for thousands, you could have said keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. So his judgment on sin to the third and the fourth, but his steadfast love for thousands of generations. Let's look at Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. Now you'll You'll see, this is a familiar passage, right? Especially verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are, not your, my high, ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your hot, we, thoughts. We, we know this passage, right? We've heard this before. Oftentimes we use this passage to kind of think and talk about, gosh, the Lord's ways are inscrutable. We can't understand him, right? His ways are higher than our ways, his, Thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But let's put it in context. What do verses 6 and 7 say? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Why? That he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There's that abundant word again. That's the context. So the Lord's ways 
are not our ways. Not just that his ways are inscrutable, but when you've been wronged, how hard is it to forgive? I don't know about you, but the longer I go on in life, I actually find it harder. It's difficult to forgive. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I will abundantly pardon. Let's go to the next passage. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 31 through 33. The prophet Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. It's a really interesting book. It's a, it's a book of poetry. There are five chapters. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 are all 22 verses each. In the middle, you have chapter 3. Chapter 3 has 66 verses. And dead center in the smack of the middle of the book of Lamentations, you find verse 33. He does not afflict from his heart. God's heart is not to afflict the children of men and to grieve the children of men. That's not the first thing that springs forth from him. And look, for the, look at the context. The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According, here's that word again, the abundance of his steadfast love. Let's go to the last passage I want you to see. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 20. A little more context. That's one of my strengths for you strengths finder people. Um, so I have to do context. And so here's the context, and I think it's actually pretty helpful. So the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is prophesying judgment, judgment, judgment on the nation of Israel. Then we go to chapters 34 through 52. It's judgment, judgment, judgment and all the surrounding nations. But in the middle, chapters 30 through 33, you find four chapters that the theologians call the Book of Consolation. And this is what we find in the Book of Consolation. Is Ephraim, which is God's, it's kind of like a term of endearment for the nation of Israel that God uses for the nation of Israel. So this is, we're already starting Somewhere different. This is a term of endearment flowing out of God's heart. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Now, this isn't remember in the sense that he, of course, would ever forget. What he means is remember his mercy. Remember his compassion. Remember his loving kindness. Therefore, my heart yearns for him still. Now, we just saw in Lamentations 3, verse 33, that you know, he does not afflict from his heart. But here, the word for heart is actually closer to innards, his bowels. My heart, my bowels yearn for Israel, that he would have mercy, declares the Lord. So what does this mean, that this is God's heart? It's not just Jesus saying, hey, this is what I'm like, but God the Father is really angry all the time. That's not, what we're, that's not what the testimony of Scripture bears for us. So what does this mean? It means that coming to you, calling to you when you're suffering, you're hurting, even due to your own sin and bad decisions, it's his first impulse. He's not repulsed by you. He's drawn to you, and he's drawn to me. It's the thing that springs forth most naturally from him. I like the way Orland says it here. 
When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. And of course, when we think of Jesus, when I, if I'd done that with the word association game, I bet many of you, the first word that would have come to mind is compassion. Was not the Lord Jesus the most compassionate person to ever walk the face of the earth? Was he not moved when he saw the leper and the leopard says to him, if you will, I can be clean. Jesus says, I will be clean. And that word will there is not just in the sense of like, yeah, I want this to happen. The word is actually his deepest desire. Jesus' deepest desire was to heal that leper, to go to him in his uncleanness and make him clean. Think about how he feeds the hungry, how he heals the sick, the, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the mute, how he teaches the crowds. There's twice that Jesus wept that the scriptures record. Two times he wept. One time was over the city of Jerusalem, right? He said, you know, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers the chickens under, or chicks under his wings, but, but you would not. And then the other time, of course, was for Lazarus, when Lazarus was dead, weeping over the impact uh, of sin. You see, he's not like us. We see something that's gross and disgusting. We recoil. We kind of wrench up our faces, and we don't want to touch it. If we touch it, it's like, let's put some gloves on before we touch this disgusting and dirty thing, right? Jesus isn't like that. He's actually drawn to you in your suffering. And here's the thing. You may be thinking, well, of course God is drawn to me when I'm, having, I'm in a bad spot, when I've lost my job, right? When I found out that I've got cancer. Of course God is drawn to me then. But what about when I screwed up big? What about that, that time when I, you know, it's, it's more than just drinking for me. Yeah, you know, like I need alcohol to feel okay. Does Jesus still love me then? What about this? If you knew how angry I was, and I don't mean me personally, but if you knew, as an example, how angry I was all of the time, there's no way Jesus would want any part of that. If you knew how lustful my thoughts were all the time. If you knew how much I cared about other people think about me. If you knew how much I cared about money, how it drives every decision that I make. There's no way that Jesus would be drawn to me. But do you guys remember? It was something that the Pharisees called Jesus, and they, they used it derogatorily. But we can, we can shout it from the mountaintops. What did they call him? They called him the friend of sinners. It's because he was drawn to you and drawn to me in our sin. That's who Jesus is. That's his gentle and lowly heart. I love the way that Orton closes this. If Jesus had his own personal website, so this is kind of a funny thought experiment to begin with, but if he had his own website, the most prominent line of the about me, so you go to the about me on Jesus' website, and then you hit the drop down, and the most prominent line would be gentle and lowly in heart. And out of that gentle and lowly heart, he offers us a yoke so that we could learn his own heart more. So let's look at his yoke. Now, I'm pretty disappointed because about five weeks ago, 
I found a yoke down in Sedalia and bought it, and I had every intention to bring you here. This is sitting in my garage at home. Um, and it's really cool. It's like weathered. It's probably 150 years old. But um, I want to point out, with, without that really cool prop, <laughs> I want to point out three things to you this morning about a yoke. Um, first is that it's a yoke. Second, that Jesus' yoke is light, is easy and light. And lastly, it's not meant to be born alone. So let's look at the first one, that it's, it is a yoke. Yokes are heavy. You would have seen if I'd had it here this morning. That thing is heavy. It's meant to be borne by big animals like oxen, right? They're a symbol of toil and labor. And in, in fact, even in the Old Testament, they're often used as a symbol of slavery and oppression. So that's the, that's the, the, the imagery of a yoke. And, and even Jesus refers to the heavy burden that the Pharisees and the religious class laid on the people with a bunch of rules, right? That they added to God's law. They added a bunch of other rules to kind of set up hedges. Like, well, we don't want to get, we don't really want to ever violate the Sabbath, so let's set up 10 other rules outside of that so we can never even come close, for example, to violating the Sabbath. So they, they laid these heavy burdens, like a heavy yoke, on the Israelites. So it's interesting to me that Jesus chose a yoke to depict what it's like to be in discipleship with him. But I think there's a reason for that. And I think we was said earlier this morning in the first service, um, one of our pastors, Paul, said this. The Christian life, it's not, it's not easy. It can be very difficult. And so there is a yoke that we put on when we, when we follow Jesus. But how does he describe that yoke? Well, here's the second point. It's easy and light. That's what he says in verse 30. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what does he mean that it's easy? It's the same word that you see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, where he says, be kind to one another. That word kind is the same word as easy here. It's the same Greek word. So basically what he's saying is this is a kindly yoke that you're going to put on when you come to me. And it's light, you know, compared to the old way of doing things, the religious way of doing things, of the striving. This is a much, much lighter yoke. It's kind of like this. So you have a baby. The baby's an infant. The infant grows, becomes a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old. You're not picking up the three-year-old, the toddler, quite as often, but every now and then, four, even five years old, you're picking up the child and, and holding the child and comforting the child. And then you go to see some friends, and they just had a newborn. And you're like, oh, let me hold the baby. And you grab that baby, and it's like, oh. It's like there, there's no weight to the baby compared to this five-year-old person that you've been carrying around regularly. You grab that infant, and it's like, yeah, there's something there, but boy, it's not much. I think that's what Jesus' yoke is like. But he says it's light and easy, but if we look at what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, think about this for a minute. He said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's pretty interesting. Easy and light yoke. Come to me, be my disciple, do these things. But your righteousness needs to be amazing in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So if his requirements are higher and harder than the Pharisees, how do we reconcile these two things. And it lies on that last point that I want to make about his yoke. We're not meant to bear it alone. So, 
uh, I guess back in the day, as, as recent as whenever people were using oxen to plow their fields and, and pull carts, which I'm sure is still quite common in many parts of the world, they, uh, when you have a young ox, what you do is you put that young ox into a yoke with an old ox. And that young ox learns from the old ox. When the master makes this sound, we go forward. When he makes this sound, we go right. When he makes this sound, we go left. When he makes this sound, we pull hard. Young ox, learn from me is basically what Jesus is saying here. When he calls us to put on his yoke, it's not meant to be solo. He's not asking us to do it alone. He's calling us to get in the yoke with him. I think this is really important for us to understand. And then he'll teach us through his life, through the scriptures, through fellowship with other believers. I love the testimonies from our young people this morning. Just about how many different people God used in their lives to bring them to himself. It's no different here. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and of course through the supreme and extreme example of the cross about how to obey the Father. He doesn't, here's what you need to hear. He doesn't leave us alone and then judge how well we do. He gets in the yoke with us and teaches us how to obey. That's consistent with his gentle and lowly heart. I love the way uh, another theologian, a guy named Craig Keener, said it this way. Jesus' yoke is not lighter because he demands less. And we just saw he demands more. It's not lighter because he demands less. It's but because he bears more of the load with the burden. He bears more of the load with the burden. And all of this kind of brings us to his call in verse 28. So at the very beginning, what did he say? Come to me. Come to me. And you'll find rest for your souls. So who should come? Who are the people that should come to Jesus? Well, he says it himself. All who are weary and heavy laden with burdens. Well, what kind of burdens? Who qualifies to come to Jesus? Those with doubts. We actually sang it in our first song this morning. Jesus welcomes honest doubts. He wants you to come to him. He, he understands that it's understandable to have some doubts. He gets that. He wants you to come to him. What about regrets? What about regrets? What about regrets over decisions that you've made in your life? That you use literally nothing you can do to change it. It's done. What about that? He says, come to me. What about fears? What about your fears? Come to me, he says. And of course, those who are, are suffering, I mean, Jesus' heart is so compassionate. It's so compassionate. And what about those who are striving? And I just think striving takes so many different forms, does it not? I think one of the most obvious ways that striving looks like is when you're trying to please God, you're trying to make God happy by being a good person. That's what striving looks like. If I could just make God, if I could just please him through the things that I do, the way that I live my life, 
Now, then he'll be happy with me. That's the heart of all religion. And sort of attempting to get to God by being a good person, that kind of striving. You know, and he's, he's not far. He knows your suffering. And for the sinner, I mean, I've said it before, I'll just, I need, I feel like it's worth saying again. So who, who, who amongst us is perfect? Everyone in this room has sinned and will sin again. And this is what he says to the sinner. You don't need to clean yourself up first. You don't need to have a good week. Like, well, if I just have a good week, then I'll, things will be good with God. Or maybe it's a good month. Or if I can just handle this problem, then I'll be okay with God. Then he'll accept me. Do you know what's happening there when you say that in your heart? And for the folks here that normally attend at Orchard, I, you know, I think there's a temptation as an example. You come to the Lord's Supper. Well, until I feel good about myself, I don't want to take the Lord's Supper. Guys, that kind of misses the point. The point is, you come to the Lord's Supper. You take the bread. You take the cup because you aren't good enough. And you never will be. That's the bottom line. But Jesus is good enough. So you come through him. That's in our heart, though. Each one of us in our heart has this desire to be justified and to not need something else. And it's actually, if you think about it, this idea of, I just want to make myself good enough to come to Jesus, it's actually sort of a a pushing away of God. Keep your distance, God, while I make myself right for you, as opposed to accepting him for who he says he is. And so what will you find when you come to Jesus? Well, he, he, he uses the word rest. And I think the concept is not like, you know, take a load off, kick your feet up. The concept is one of refreshing, is what he means. It's not a removal of all of life's problems or of the consequences of sinful actions and bad decisions. All that stuff is not going to necessarily go away. Um, but you will find peace and even joy that you are not alone, but in the yoke with Jesus, and that he's walking with you through your struggles. And this rest isn't already, so you'll find some rest here today, but it's a not yet, because the ultimate rest that he's calling you to is ultimately with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's his heart for you. Now, if you still aren't sure, I'm just going to rip through some quick verses here. Hebrews 12.2, if you're you're still not sure that this is actually who Jesus is, you still think he's maybe a little distant, sometimes he feels a little cool towards you. Just hear these verses. Hebrews 12.2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was his joy to go to the cross for you. He rushed, in a sense, into your sin and took it upon himself on the cross. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest. Of course, Israel had high priests. They'd go in, they'd do the sacrifices. That's what the writer's talking about here. But Jesus isn't like that high priest. Why? 
because he is actually able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He's lowly. He's been laid low through the circumstances of life. What about Hebrews 5.2? He, Jesus, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Praise God, because I'm ignorant and wayward a lot, and I appreciate his gentle hand with me. How about Hebrews 7.25? He is able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He can save to the uttermost. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or what you think blocks yourself from coming to him. He will save to the uttermost. And this is my favorite one. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And then listen what he says. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. These are more than just theological truths, brothers and sisters. These are, these flow out of God's own heart. But while God has a gentle and lowly heart towards the childlike who come to him in faith, there is a kind of person that Jesus opposes, that he actually opposes. It's the proud. It's those who think they know better. Right? The wise and understanding. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, he says, He denounced the cities where he did his mighty works because they did not repent. So I just caution, I warn you, those who, until now, have acted in prideful arrogance and self-sufficiency. If you don't repent and come to Christ in childlike faith, God's wrath is going to fall on you. Probably not today. Probably not tomorrow. Probably not really in this life. If you're here sitting in this room this morning, you were born in the United States, you're probably not going to feel it too much. But when you die, if you've not repented and come to him in faith, there's only one place you're going, and that is hell. And it's a place of conscious, unending anguish and torment. You're separated from God's love, his mercy, his kindness, his patience, his graciousness, but you are forever in his wrathful presence. There is a way to avoid this fate. It's by coming to Jesus, by humbling yourself and owning your sin, by putting down your burden and striving and putting on his light and easy yoke. And in that yoke, Beside him, you'll learn what real freedom is. You think you might be free, but you're not. You'll find your real freedom with him. So Jesus says to those who are suffering this morning, come to me. Jesus says to those this morning who are laid low by life's circumstances, come to me. I know what that's like. And Jesus says to the sinner and to the unrepentant, repent. And come to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Please stand with me as we pray. God, we thank you for being so gracious to us to reveal to us your heart this morning. 
Uh, Lord, we, um, we just ask that you would change us this week, that as we think about how kind and gracious and, and gentle and lowly that you have been with us, God, that we would do the same with those around us, that we would not seek to assert ourselves, that we would respond gently, not harshly, Father, that we would um, just reach out to one another who we know uh, are suffering, who are in a, in a difficult spot. And, and for the folks here this morning, Father, that have never really trusted in you, maybe know about you, but have never really seen you face to face, Lord, I just pray that they would be meted by, met by you and that they would come to see you for who you are, which is a, a gentle and loving God. But we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.